All right, let's come on in, please, and have our seats. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art in all places and fillest all things, treasure of good things and giver of life, come and dwell in us and cleanse us from every stain, and save our souls, O gracious Lord. Amen. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be pleasing to you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Last week, in our class together, we considered a number of truths regarding Christ's harrowing of Hades. And we used the icon of the resurrection as our guide through that. Now, I'm not going to be able to go through hardly anything that I did last week just to continue on. If you did not see this last week, uh, a number of folks have asked because they were not able to be here last week. I'm going to get a link to it, and you can watch it. It's on the Parish YouTube site um, to kind of get caught up a little bit. But the bottom line is we had a wonderful time together, both teaching but also in our conversation together around the harrowing of Hades, of everything that Christ has revealed to his church, so many things about what he did for us in this incredible event. The only thing I want to mention to us about it here is that one of the ways that, that I've really come to think about this, and I mentioned this last week, is that the harrowing of Hades was a violent act of the love of God. And that's the way it must be seen, because it is absolutely the violence of God upon Hades, upon the prison doors, and upon the keeper of Hades, the one who had every soul locked. We see... Jesus' feet trampling on Satan, trampling on death himself, and we see him binding Satan mercilessly, actually mercifully for his people, but he is bound. Jeff, would you kick that up a number of notches so it doesn't run? Sorry. So a violent act of the love of God, violent to Satan and the demonic and to 
the kingdom of darkness and Hades itself, that prison, but it's also the absolute revelation and manifestation of the unbelievable love of God for every soul that was entrapped there. Because every soul was released. And last week we had some wonderful discussion about not only the fact that Jesus is lifting up even Adam and Adam and Eve, the, the oldest ones to fall short and to fall that caused the fall of man. But uh, Karen Duncan mentioned that some of the iconographers and, and the speak that the church teaches, look at how he's lifting them up. He's not grabbing them just hand to hand, fingers and fingers. He's grabbing them by the wrist. It's the strong hold of God lifting them out of death and bringing them to himself. And so we see it as a violent act of love. And we concluded last week having looked at everything that not only the icon shows but the fathers speak about and some of the early Christian poetry on the harrowing of Hades. We also said this at the end, that our salvation, our whole journey of salvation in Christ is a constant descent of the Lord Jesus Christ into the Hades of each of our soul in order to reveal himself there in the depths of our soul to bind the strong man in our lives that has had us bound, to release us from the captivity of our brokenness to the fall, and to take us by the wrist, always lifting us up to himself. You see that? This is a reality. This is salvation, Christ's salvation in our lives on a daily basis. And to see this today, because this is the focus, we're going to talk about the harrowing of the Hades of our own soul. That's what we're going to focus on today. To see this, we're going to look at where our journey in Christ started, which was our baptism. Our baptism, you will find, I'm sure today, after we both look at the icon of Christ's baptism and look at the baptismal service, which tells us what God is doing, I think you'll find that baptism most certainly is an act of harrowing of the, of the Hades of every soul. Then we're going to also continue to look at Christ's post-resurrection, after his resurrection ministry, where he's literally entering, going down right into the Hades of what his disciples are dealing with, manifesting his reality and bringing them out of that Hades of an experience. Okay, so This is where we're going today. So We're going to start with the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ, which shows us, by the way, everything that he does in our baptism. Okay? When our Lord Jesus Christ descended into those waters of the Jordan, he did so in the same manner in which he descended into Hades and for the same reasons, to bind Satan, to purify the means by which he would come to us in our Hades, bind the strong man in our lives, and free us to come and worship him. Remember, even that's what God said in the deliverance of God's people in Egypt. What was the message that God told Moses to give Pharaoh? Let my people go so that they might what? Come and worship me. And this is what our Lord does in baptism. And I want you to notice a few things. Notice our Lord's feet. Remember how he paid attention to the feet in the icon of the resurrection, how the feet are trampling upon Hades, death, and Satan himself. What do you see under his feet? It might be a little hard to see, but what do you see under his feet? Looks like a cross. Right? But what's under the cross? Serpents. Serpents. 
No. Under his feet are serpents. Okay. And there are two ways, actually, subdeacon, you're right to look at that. They have been, they are meant to give the impression of the word of God revealing itself, but also the cross itself, which is why they're formed with that. Okay. And on top of that, because we know that through the cross, he treaded on the head of the serpent, which goes back in Genesis to the very prophecy, same one we looked at in the harrowing of Hades, when he bound the strong man and took away all of his power. In his own baptism, when he enters into those waters, he is treading on the head of the serpent, another fulfilling of the type that Genesis spoke about right at the fall, where the prophecy was given directly by God, that Jesus would, with his heel, bruise the head of the serpent, the more devastating blow. You also see in those waters not only the serpents, but you can also see that there are other creatures that are in the process. If you look, they're fleeing away from. They're leaving. They're fleeing the presence of Christ in the waters. In the history of the church, the teaching on this, is, as far as this icon is, sir, is, has how it's been written, I should say, is that this comes from our Lord's statements in the Psalms. Psalm 73, Thou didst establish the sea by thy, thy might. Thou did break the head of the dragons in the water. And also Psalm 76, The waters saw thee, O God, the waters saw thee and were afraid. The abysses were troubled. Okay? And so we see again the idea of Christ trampling on something, overcoming in his baptism, which tells us a lot about ours. We'll look at that in a few minutes. But also notice over to the left. We see two figures that are coming out of what looks to be a dark cave. And what the church teaches us about this icon is what is happening even at Christ's baptism. The, real, the reason that it is celebrated as Theophany, when we're celebrating our Epiphany in the West, the East is celebrating Theophany because just as Christ is being revealed to the Gentiles at Epiphany, Christ is revealing himself to the Jews at his baptism. It's the very revelation of Christ, and the ones that are coming out of that dark cave are always known to be uh, Thomas and Andrew. Verse 2. And when Jesus is baptized, notice what they're coming out of. They're coming out of darkness, being illumined by the presence of Christ who's gone into those waters. So as Christ makes himself present, we come out of our darkness. His light illumines us. The revelation, the, the giving of himself to us brings us out of our darkness. Isn't that just like the harrowing of Hades? Are they not being brought out by their wrists, right, out of that darkness of the tomb where they were held for so long. You know, the language of the prayers, this is still very fresh on my mind. In fact, I wish I had these with me. I've got the baptismal ones. But the language of the prayers in the blessing of the waters that we do at the Paschal Vigil, which prepares the waters for baptism in the same way that Jesus prepared these waters for, the, for baptism forever, for his whole church, all throughout time. Those prayers, everything in them is about Christ descending into the waters. There are exorcism prayers that are prayed over the waters, and the demons must flee from those waters as those waters are now sanctified for the washing away of the results of the fall of man, the healing of the soul, and the engrafting of that soul 
into Christ himself and his family. So we see in Christ's baptism, as we've always known through the church, we see our own baptism, which is where our journey with Christ begins. Notice the similarities. I can't help but see them even as I talk about them. Notice all the similarities between Christ's harrowing of Hades and the resurrection, between the feet, the pulling out of darkness, the overthrowing. Remember the making himself known? We even talked about last week's how St. John, the forerunner who went into Hades before Jesus, continued in his ministry of preparing the hearts to receive Christ who was coming down to them soon. He's the forerunner even in Hades. And that's why we see him to the left turn to the other ones explaining that, right? So we see all of this happening and people coming out of their darkness. We see the same thing in the baptismal scene. Baptism is a harrowing of Hades for every soul that goes in to those waters. Always remember something about our baptism, and it's shown in his. What, there, what, what do you think of as far as Old Testament types that pointed to and were fulfilled in baptism? Think of the Old Testament. What's that? Passing through the Red Sea. Passing through the Red Sea. That's a perfect example. One could also say the flood. You talk about violent acts of God, violent acts of love on behalf of his people. Nahum and the leper, where he goes into the waters and is washed and clean. All great examples. But here's what we're seeing in every one of them. If we think, let's think, for example, of the Red Sea. Because this is the one that's mentioned the most, in the, not only in the uh, blessing of the waters for baptism, but in the baptismal services. We reference what Christ did there when we think about our baptism. And in that, remember... His people were in the darkness of captivity and an extraordinarily lesser existence in life than they'd ever existed in and were ever purposed to exist in in paradise. And so God sends a deliverer. The means of deliverance was through the water. They had their backs to the water. God opened it up. They passed through the waters and they passed through in that moment from their slavery to their freedom in God. Now they could worship him. But then what does God do with the waters? It's a violent act. He closes it upon all of those soldiers and charioteers, all of it, and they are washed away, which not only, by the way, set them free, it crippled Egypt for a long time. You see the picture of the binding of the strong man? You see also the picture of the plundering of his house, all the people are gone. So in baptism and in the harrowing of Hades, we're seeing very much the same movement of God. And the prayers over those to be baptized communicates to us. We always believe this. The prayers don't tell you what a priest is saying and what a priest is hoping for. The prayers in the liturgy and the prayers in every service like baptism, they tell you what Jesus is doing, not just an ask for. These are things he's commanded us to join with his will in, and his will is done. Okay? And so I thought I might 
mention just a few of the prayers. The first section, when someone's being baptized, these are adults. Infant baptism is a little different. This is adult baptism, which is, quite frankly, anyone but infants. Okay? In that baptismal service, they're signed with the sign of the cross, but then immediately we go to what's called the exorcism portion of the baptismal service. Three times, they will kneel and say the Our Father, their sponsor will sign the sign of the cross, they'll raise up, and then the prayer of exorcism is prayed, and this is done three times with three different exorcism prayers. Some of you, this is still fresh to you because you just had them prayed over whether you're getting baptized or chrismated. It was for you. But the first prayer, Therefore, accursed devil, acknowledge your condemnation. Pay homage to the living and true God. Pay homage to Jesus Christ, his Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Never dare to desecrate the sign of the cross signed upon their forehead. You hear the casting out. You hear you will bend before Christ. You will bow before Christ, and you will honor him in this moment. The second prayer I love because it describes what it does to Satan. Here, accursed Satan, I adjure you by the name of the eternal God and of our Savior Jesus Christ, depart with your envy, and then listen, conquered, trembling, and groaning. When I think of those words, I think that's what Satan looks like after they're prayed in the life of that person. Satan is bound. He is rendered weak. And he is crying out just like he cried out when he lost those souls in Hades. Satan. is. That's why I still go back to that picture I mentioned last week. Remember I mentioned in the Passion how the camera descends into Hades. Everything's broken apart and there's no souls left. Satan is screaming in anguish of the robbery that just occurred to him and the limited power he's left with. See? And that's what we're talking about in these prayers over the baptized. And the final one, I exercise you unclean spirit in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Come forth and depart from this ser servant. He commands you, accursed and damned one, who, who walked upon the sea and extended his right hand to Peter as he was sinking. Look at the hands of Christ. Do you see? The, and all the imagery is there. And this is what our Lord has done in the harrowing of our initial harrowing of Hades in our own soul. When we come into him and come into his holy church, he has rendered Satan weak and powerless. We said last week, what's the only power that Satan has? The only power we allow him. Because God's ripped it away. Yes? Question last week about whether the in this context, right? In this context. Great. Each one of us. That's right. Yeah, someone asked that last week. Is, is, there, is there still a Hades? Is it still going on? The answer is yes and no. There's not this Hades. There's this one. Right? Very good. Very good. Absolutely. Okay. With what Randy said. As long as we are remaining in Christ, this activity of descending, revealing, binding our enemy, freeing us, and raising us up, all five of those things are the lifelong journey of the Christian. It never stops. It never stops. By the faithfulness of God and his love for mankind. 
He continues to come to us in this way. So let's look at other ways the harrowing of Hades is ministered in our souls throughout our lives. This is not going to be exhaustive. We don't have time for it to be exhaustive, but to look at a few examples, and particularly to use the post-resurrection ministry of Christ to see him do these kind of things that he's actively wanting to do in our own lives. For example, in last week's sermon, in last week's sermon, it spoke to this when the resurrected Lord descends into the Hades-like experience of his disciples. What, what, why was their life like Hades after the crucifixion of our Lord? What were they going through? What was their experience? Persecution. Yeah, fears of persecution, active persecution. They're mourn, in mourning from being separated from their beloved rabbi and Lord. Say it again. They were hiding. Fear. So they were gripped in fear, bound in fear, yeah. They had imprisoned themselves. Yeah. yeah. Their inner prison became an external one, didn't it? Yeah. That doesn't happen to us at all, right, Randy? Remain until he. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he hadn't left yet. No, I see. At the ascension, he would do that, and they'd go into oh, Jerusalem. Okay. This is right after the resurrection. I mean, excuse me, right after the crucifixion, before they encounter the resurrection. Oh, so they didn't know. They, did, they were confused. They were lost. So we're saying all the right words, fears, anxiousness, locked in, imprisoned, and their life has changed on a dime on them. They were despondent. Exactly. And remember what St. Cyril said about this, that when Christ presented himself and greeted his disciples with the word, peace be with you, by peace he meant himself. Himself. But Christ's presence always brings tranquility of soul. And this is the pattern we want to look at at other post-resurrection things our Lord does, is that our Lord literally goes right to where they are in their imprisonment, meets them exactly like they need to be met, knows the way to create a path for them to grab onto him where he can lift them up out of that and restore them. And the next one we want to look at as far as post-resurrection experiences, is the road to Emmaus. Now, I love this icon. This is actually a 14th century fresco at the Grakanitsa Monastery in Serbia. That's the whole thing. Love to see it live. Because it tells the whole story. It shows the whole story of the two disciples encountering Christ on the road to Emmaus. And this comes from the Gospel of St. Luke in chapter 24. And in this testimony, two disciples are walking along the road to Emmaus. We have one name given to us in the Gospel of St. Luke, and that's St. Cleopas. Okay? That's one of the two. And by the way, he was numbered among the 70. So the 70 disciples that Jesus sent out to go and heal and cast out the demons... He was part of that group. Mary's husband. Yeah, our, yeah our and our tradition of faith tells us that the other one was none other than the gospel writer Luke himself, who was also numbered among the 70 disciples who would be sent out, and he would write this gospel. So St. Luke and Cleopas are on the road to Emmaus, and they are also enduring their own Hades-like experience. Okay? They are grieving deeply 
because they've suffered a great loss. And not only that, I want you to try to jump into this. I, I can kind of easily because of a number of things I've gone through in life, and I think you will be too. They are confused. Their world has been turned upside down. Their compass is going, their internal, emotional, and everything compass is doing this business. This is what's going on in their life. <clears throat> Have you ever had one of those experiences where something happened in your life that threw you to where you didn't even feel like you're existing for the moment? Everything changed in a heartbeat. Some people encounter this at the death of a loved one. Where you're mad at the rest of the world because they're going on with their life as usual, but you can't. Because life and that, that suffering has paralyzed you for the minute. Right? I will tell you one of mine. I'll talk about it a little bit later. When we went through Hurricane Katrina, you, you talk about everything, even beyond. I'd experienced that with the death of a loved one. With Hurricane Katrina, we leave thinking we'll be back in a few days when the storm passes and 80% of our city's gone. And then we, we don't even get to go back into the city until a month later because there was no electricity, no groceries, no food. When we go back, it was very much not like it was. Houses were pushed in together. Blocks, the houses had been moved. Cars were up in trees. And no one's there. And this is New Orleans, Louisiana where somebody's always outside doing something. So what I'm trying to tell you, I'm trying to get you into the experience here that these disciples were going through. When everything changes, nothing makes sense. And there's great confusion in our lives during those times of suffering. And this is the darkness of what they are going through. Okay, And so let's look at what Christ does to step down and descend into it and then to bring them up where they longed to be, but never thought they could again. Okay? So Jesus descends right into their Hades, but a little bit unlike the ones that we saw, like with Thomas, or with Mary right outside, Mary Magdalene right outside the tomb. She gets that experience, because this time Jesus doesn't, he shows up, but he doesn't let them know it's him. It says his identity is hidden from them. So they don't know that it's him. And Jesus asked them, what conversation, because he listens to them talking about all this confusion they're going through. What, what conversation are you having, he asked, in, with one another that has your countenance so profoundly sad? And they answered, have you not heard of all that just happened in Jerusalem? And so then they proceeded in the gospel to tell Jesus everything that happened to Jesus. Because they didn't know it was him. And he patiently, you know what he's doing? He's letting them get the poison out. He's not stepping in. They have a need for all of this to come out. You need to see his wisdom. And he does this with us many, many times in our life. Sometimes we cry out and we cry out. And we feel like the Lord doesn't show up. The whole time he's letting the poison get out so that our soul would be receptive for the moment that he does. How many of you have been through one of those times where you feel like you're shouting at the ceiling and God is nowhere to be found? And if somebody doesn't raise their hands, I'll figure something out for you. <laughs> We've all been through that. 
And yet, even in those times, our Lord is actively doing something in our, in our both patient or impatient waiting. He's doing this for them. He's letting this stuff come out, getting the poison out. So after he's done, then he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all the prophets that have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then listen to this. And beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures and things concerning himself that they had said. Stop and consider this for a moment. Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, is expounding the scriptures concerning himself. That word expounded in the Greek, I love it. It's not just a little teaching moment. In the Greek, that word expounded is he explained thoroughly, making sure they're understanding as he's explaining it. He unfolded the meaning of the prophecies and helped them match it to what had just happened to their Lord, who they'd seen all of this happen to them. My goodness gracious, where can I listen to that podcast? <laughs> the Word of God. The Word of God teaching the depths of the words he uttered and matching it to himself without them even knowing it was him. You know? This is what he's doing. Is it any wonder that we find out at the end of the story, which we'll get to soon, is it any wonder that we found out that while he's doing this, what did it say was going on in their hearts? They were burning within them because the word of God was not only preaching and teaching, he was revealing himself through it, even though he hid his identity. Okay? But even this, when their hearts were burning... They still didn't recognize Jesus, but they were being again. If he was preparing them by letting them get the poison out, by not interjecting himself and letting it come out, he's also now preparing them with the word, preparing them with the scriptures, preparing them with enlightenment by what he had given to those prophets to encounter him fully. Now we get to the next scene. It's about to be night, and the two disciples pull over to make camp, and Jesus acts as if he's going to continue down the road and not stay with them. Again, he's preparing them. He's wanting to, he's, he's wanting to see the invitation that he'd already instilled in them. So he keeps walking like he's going to keep on walking to Emmaus, and it's nighttime, and it's almost, you almost get this sense of they grab him. Okay? Because the two disciples who were not burning, they were not done with this man yet. They could not let him go. And so they asked him what Jesus was hoping they'd ask, and the, what he really is yearning for all of us to request of him. They say to him these words, come and abide with us. What is he saying? Come and make your home with us. Let's share ourselves some more. Come and make your home with us and dwell with us. And Jesus gladly and lovingly does so. And they sit at table to fellowship and eat together. And we're told that this happens. Now we're at the middle scene. That Jesus takes bread. It's the same language from earlier in the Gospel of St. Luke. 
Jesus takes bread and he broke it and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. You got to see the progression here because it's a it's a this type of progression where Christ knows exactly how to go to us but also how to patiently and lovingly bring us to the reception of him and then he reveals himself. This is this is the wisdom of God that no man has for he knows every soul so perfectly. So the two disciples are in that Hades of darkness, confusion, anxious and bound by sadness. The progression is this. The word of God begins to reveal through the scriptures and the explanation of those scriptures, the correct way to see it, he's beginning to reveal himself, causing a heart to burn and become ablaze. If you remember from last week, something else from last week's sermon, we talked about this. This is the theology part. Theology is Christ revealing himself to his people. That's what theology is. And he revealed himself to Mary Magdalene. Remember, Mary Magdalene goes and tells the disciples when Thomas wasn't with them, Christ is risen, I've experienced him, all this kind of stuff. This is the revelation. You know their hearts were beginning to hope, but they didn't yet believe. It would be foolish to think that those disciples weren't longing for that to be true. But they didn't yet believe. However, just that revelation, that theology, so to speak, being revealed, what did St. Peter do? It caused him to move towards an experience. He ran to the tomb, and he saw it open, and nothing was there except the linens nicely folded in the tomb. But he moved towards an experience, but it wasn't yet given. You see how God is progressing St. Peter. Same thing with Thomas. The disciples all encounter the risen Christ. They go and tell, like Jesus was telling these two, all that had happened and what it, what it really meant. But, they, but Thomas doesn't yet believe, and yet it moves him to state what he needs for the experience. It moves him towards the experience. This is what Jesus is doing with these two. And it's always, if the heart of mankind will hold on to God for dear life through the process, he will always faithfully, eventually, show up perfectly the way that person needs it and elevate them out of their tomb, the tomb of whatever they're existing in in life right now. This is the faithfulness of God. And so it begins with this revelation of the word of God and then the step two, now prepared, now the poison out. Now prepared, they receive Christ himself revealed and then he vanishes. Let's talk about the vanishing for just one moment. I am pretty convinced. We see Jesus do this, right? He pops into the room that was locked where all the disciples was two times. He shows up without knocking, coming in, no need of a door. And then when he's done, it says he vanished. He does the same thing with these two, with Luke and with Cleopas. He shows up, reveals himself, their hope is rekindled, their peace is restored, and boom, he's gone. There's a teacher once that I used to listen to, and I think he probably nailed this. He said, is, he said that the Lord was teaching his disciples object permanence. For a child, when a child is age zero up to very young, 
They don't have object permanence, which means if I, like a daddy would, holds a little ball or a rattle up in front of the child, their eyes are fixed on it. But if I take that rattler, rattle or I take that ball and I, and I hide it, they really believe it's gone from the universe, that it does not exist anymore. You see that? But when a child gains object permanence, I can take that same ball to the same child and wave it in front of their face, they're locked on, and I put it down. Oh, they're still searching for it because that ball still exists. He's preparing them for what he would say in ascension. He would leave them physically, but what would he say? I am with you always. And I kind of see that playing out even here. He does this many times with his disciples after his resurrection. He's actively preparing them for that life. He left them visually, but the presence they still knew he was there. Exactly. In this particular does that tie into the moment that he vanishes? It's in the breaking of the bread. Mm. Yes, hold that thought. Don't get ahead of the teaching. Because <laughs> you're spot on. It's exactly what it is. And in fact, when he breaks the bread and they say he knew, they knew him. L listen to this word knew. It, it's not recognized. It goes way beyond. Oh, that was Jesus. Okay? In the Greek... Not only to recognize someone, that word new means to become thoroughly acquainted with someone. To truly know a person is what, it, is what it means. To know them well. How? In the breaking of the bread. But Before we go on, do you see the harrowing of their Hades? He comes to them precisely in the way that they need, differently than the other disciples. Because he knew them. He knew his sheep like we talked about today. He comes to them in that, and he knows how to open their hearts to clear out all the junk and fill with good things that cause a hope and a desire for more, and then to even fulfill that incredible desire that was burning in them. And now they're not in the same place they were before. They have been lifted out of it by the presence of Christ in it. Yes, Michelle. Yeah, in like fact, absolutely, if we're going to talk about more of them next week. And even St. Paul says there's a point where he, he showed up, he showed himself to 500 some odd people. St. Paul mentions that. So he, no, he was around and many people saw and experienced the risen Christ. Mm -hmm. Well, yes and no. In person, like this. Yes. Remember what he told? Remember, <clears throat> after his ascension, here's what changes. Remember what he told Thomas? After Thomas' faith was revived by the experience of Christ, by touching him, right? He says, You believe because you saw me. Many, many will believe and not see. So when he ascends, the dynamics change in a way, but he's preparing them for that all along the way. And he was preparing them for that all along his life. Okay. So what we want to look at right now in conclusion is this. 
you just saw on the road to Emmaus the exact, and I mean exact, pattern of every liturgy that's ever been in the church. What's the pattern of the liturgy? First is the, is the, is the word. The liturgy of the word. But what happens? Think about what happens in the liturgy. If we have prepared ourselves, that's the if. If we have prepared ourselves, the first thing we do is cry out for mercy. What are we doing? We're getting the poison out. Coming out. What's the next thing that happens? The revelation of Christ through the word of God. By, the, by not just the preaching. We are to listen to the words being read and chanted in the services as if Christ is speaking to our soul. Basically, in our minds, we should be going, what do you want to show me of yourself? What do you want to tell me? And then we have the preaching on how to truly see those scriptures. And it's Christ revealing himself to his people like he did on the road to Emmaus. What should be happening if we're attentive is, he is moving us along in a journey of ascension from when we came in in our darkness to the reception of his perfect light. And so this is the preparation stage where he's revealing himself through the scriptures. Preparing our hearts, make, setting them ablaze. Why? Because I'm not going to leave liturgy right now. I'm staying because I have to have more. Just like the disciples wouldn't let Jesus go. And what happens at the very end? What is the pinnacle experience of the Christian in the worship of the church? The breaking of the bread, the revelation of the Christ, and the reception of him physically into us, his body and his blood. And there our hope is fulfilled and kindled and encouraged. And I'm going to tell you this, a testimony from my own life. You'll find this at different seasons in yours if you walk long enough with Christ. When I came into orthodoxy, I had a very small parish that was decimated by Hurricane Katrina. It was a mission parish that was growing, and then Katrina hit, and it went bye-bye. So I had just a very fledging little group. And we appealed to start a Western Rite mission parish in uh, New Orleans, and it was denied. And that meant one thing. I had to lay down my collar and my pastoral ministry with no promise of getting it back. I, I knew that I had to have the faith more than I had to have the pastoral ministry, but that doesn't mean that didn't leave a mark. I had a lot of suffering that I went through that was God-driven and a gift from God in hindsight because I now see what he was doing. But you talk about an identity shift. I'd been a pastor for eight years up to that point. And I didn't know which end was up other than I need to provide for my family and my, and my three kids at that time who were very little and go through the studies but, and just trust God. And finally, the, what I'm trying to tell you is this. There was a period of a good couple of years where I promise you the only peace that I ever had during the week, real peace, was when I sat in the liturgy with the unfolding of paradise with the scriptures being read and taught and moving me to Jesus. And that would go for about two years straight where that would be the case. 
<laughs> just like the people on the road to Emmaus. I, re I know their journey. And I know that what Christ did there is, is the liturgy we do here. Because here Christ discerns. He brings things out of us that don't need to be there. Desiring to fill those empty spots with himself that very day. As he breaks the bread and we see him for who he truly is. Now there are so many other ways that the harrowing of Hades is an active ministry of Jesus Christ to our souls. We are bound in certain sins and addictions and patterns. There are so many different bindings that still exist in our life. And God always is constantly faithful through Jesus Christ in descending right into it. Thank God by his mercy, he doesn't want to deal with it all at one time. It would kill us. But by his mercy, he starts lopping off the bondage because he descends into it, binds our enemy, and begins to heal us with his salve and reveal himself to us, which is ultimately the real healing of our soul. Does that make sense? Like St. Paul said in uh, Colossians chapter 1, that this, he is the deliverer. St. Paul said he has delivered us from the powers of darkness and conveyed us to the kingdom of the Son of his love. It's a transplanting ministry where he goes into the depths of the darkness and he digs us up and he replants us in a paradise. And that's our experience as Christians if we'll hang in there with him. He'll take us on the, on the Emmaus journey and he'll take us to the harrowing of our Hades that will end up filling us with joy. Okay? Let's stand. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you all.